Have you made a lot of money out of your music? Money? I mean, what is, how, much is, how much is a lot of money to you? Yeah, that's a good question. Have, have you made, say, millions of dollars? No. Are you a rich man? What do you mean rich? What do you mean? Do you have a lot of possessions? A lot well, of money in the bank? Possession make you rich? I don't, I don't have that type of richness. My richness is life forever. You are listening to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. You must unlearn everything that you've learned up to this point. Unlearn all the fear, attachment, ego, and living for sense and desires gratification. In order to then learn to walk the ascended path to immortality and realization of the true self. This is episode 175, and I'm your host, Miguel. And before we start, I want to give a big, big shout out to my people in the Philippines where right now my podcast is rating in philosophy in the top 40. In Ireland, where my podcast is rating in the top 30 to 40 in philosophy. And in the UK also, where it's rating pretty high, like in the 30s and 40s. And in the United States, where it's, it's kind of edging between on and off in the top 100 in philosophy. On and off. Which is, which is great because, you know, I'm just a small-time dude and it's uh, really a lot of gratitude and thank you so much for the support and keep those DMs and emails and five-star reviews coming. Let's do it. is the sound of one body, three congas, and the wawango beat. la muerte, oíste cabrón. Realta la muerte. Los intocables, oíste la bebicho. Anuel. Vestido negro Freemason y la glopeta chipia con la máscara de Jason. Los peines la correa. Y cuidándome de los del furo y la dea Amén. Y te acostamos en la brea ah. Los 4-7 son sí. rápidos como varea Y te matamos donde sea Y hacemos un año cabrón aquí nadie chotea It's really great to be back in podcast land As you guys know, you listeners that have been listening to me for a while I used to put out an episode every week 
but oddly enough, it doesn't matter if I put out uh, an episode every week or an episode every month or every six weeks. My uh, ratings and my downloads and stuff pretty much stay the same. So obviously I'm being shadow banned and there's a lot going on. So it's kind of frustrating when you as philosophical as I am and Taoist as I am and Christian as I am. You know, it, it is somewhat frustrating when you put effort into a show and into a podcast because <clears throat> I put my heart and soul into it. This is my passion to have it just, you know, shadow banned and, you know, it kind of sucks. You know, I had, like I said, I had a few friends that are on iTunes and I says, hey, you know, check me out, check out my podcast. And they were kind of excited. They were looking and they couldn't find me. So, you know, I know absolutely that I am shadow banned, but that is what it is. It shows you that I'm doing the right thing. And I would prefer to be on that side of the fence where um, I'm having an impact than to be vanilla pudding, you know, just a, you know, cookie cutter podcast where I talk about uh, the UFC and uh, the price of cheese in Berlin, you know. So, yeah, I've been I've been chilling, getting into uh, my own little things that I have to do, doing a lot of work around the house, kind of uh, doing a lot of renovations and stuff, going, going kind of deep into the plumbing and the electrical and, and what have you, but... It's rewarding, you know, my wife likes to, you know, have her little place cozy and nice, so we have, uh, you know, intention to kind of bring up the place a little bit and, uh, you know, have our little our little uh, domain over here where we can be cozy and comfortable in our old age, you know, as everybody wants to be cozy, as you know. So as much as I talk about comfort and everything like that, but when you deserve it and when you work hard for it, then enjoy it, man. You know, it says in the Bible, the sleep of a hardworking man is sweet, so... Yeah, with everything that's going on these days, uh, it's important to have an understanding. It's just becoming clearer and clearer to me of what is being perpetrated. They're, they're freaking us out with this, uh, what is it, let's go Brandon thing, you know, <laughs> to Joe Biden, which I think is actually hilarious. They're putting it out there so that we can attach to it and tell oh, look at this guy, he's wearing pampers and this Joe Biden guy, and then you attach to it. I, I, I honestly look at it and I laugh. Uh, it's funny, here in Jersey, I actually, I'm, I'm the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn, but I've been in Jersey for the past, goodness, 35 years, you know, I bought a house out here years ago. So, they have this political, political um, advertisements with this Joseph Cittarelli and Murphy, you know, you know, the two mayors that are running against one another, and one of the commercials, the guy, Cittarelli, comes on and says, oh, you know... I'm going to play a clip of, of Phil Murphy, our, our current governor. And then Phil Murphy looks at the camera and he goes, if you're a tax person and taxes are your main issue, maybe New Jersey's not the state for you. You know, we're like real scowling and shit with a real attitude. And then Cittarelli comes on and says, is this guy for real? And as I see it, I can just see what the screen is presented to me saying, hey, come on, get angry, get upset, get mad. Look, look at what this guy just said. And I'm... You know, I'm the cure for that, and, you know, I can fix, you know, just just bullshit. You know, it's, it's just puppet A and puppet B, and they both are being controlled by the same puppet master, Soros, or whoever is the controller du jour. I look at it, and I really actually have a good laugh, because I say to myself, wow, it is so good to have the ability to see through these layers of, of bullshit that they're putting to us, you know? And, and that one is at, like, layer three or four, like, if you're looking really hard, um, you know, even just looking at the expressions on their faces, the way they, the screen makes its presentation. It's, it's craziness. You know, it's almost like you kind of get joy out of it because, you know, 
you kind of have them figure it out. You've cracked the code and, and, and you see what is being presented to you. And you see it's being presented as bullshit, you know, getting into that matrix speak. But, um, and another thing, there's this guy, uh, Quantum of Conscious, I bring him up on my podcast all the time. He's been pretty much on fire. He puts out a lot of content. He's half crazy. He's half genius. And uh, I have moments where I could sit and literally listen to him for like four hours. I know that sounds crazy, but he, uh, he's he been on fire. He's been putting out a lot of content. And I'm not going to say everything that he puts out is like 100%, whatever, whatever. I mean, it's his thing that he's doing. But um, I'm digging him, man. He's, he, 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 his presentation, well, not really his presentation, but his truth that he's bringing forth. As I said, he gets it from movies that he watches and just different observations that he makes in life. You know, his cats and stuff. But shout out to you, Quantum of Conscious, man. You got one of the best shows on YouTube, man. You should have a whole lot more listeners than you have right now. So shout out to you. And I still think you listen to me, dude. But whatever, because there's a little overlap or a lot of overlap between uh, both of our content, what we speak on. He just does it from a slightly different angle. So, yeah, man, people, you got to really realize it. it seems to me from my observation and from what I'm seeing, um, that's being presented to me and everything that's going on is that um, this capitalistic, mechanistic, reductionist, enslavement, FEMA camp, sniffing operation that they're running right now is about to collapse because of the fact that they don't know whether to shit or go blind. You just see, um, I heard yesterday that they're going to the Supreme Court or some kind of court, appellate court, is going to cast down the vaccine mandates. And then another one says they're going to reinforce it because of OSHA. And it's back and forth. And they, they can do whatever the hell they want because, you know, I'm living in my own existence, in my own paradigm, in my own reality. And my emotions, my thoughts, and my realization of myself is not contingent upon their litigations, laws, and whatever they have on the books. You know what I mean? They can eat that. And I'm just going to listen to my Bob Marley and do do my thing, if you know what I mean. So, just be real, real careful because right now people, and it's funny, I'm getting like some DMs from listeners. That, that Matter of fact, I got one listener, I'm not going to mention names, but he's out in California. And he's under a lot of stress and pressure. And uh, he hits me up on the DMs and everything like that. Shout out to you, my man. Um, but there's really not, not much that you can say in that... Um, First of all, if you was in California, I would get the hell out of there. That That's like the first thing. But you're going to have to find a way to deal with this in that it doesn't penetrate into your psyche, into your mind, into your what, the way that you live your life, you know, and the way you enjoy your life. Because it's funny, but people, they live their whole lives waiting for this perfect moment to come. And what they sadly realize at an old age is that moment never came. You know, but the saddest truth is what they're not realizing is that moment of eternity is with you in the present right now. People need to realize that eternity is the present moment that you're in right now in this time space continuum when you live within the framework of time because you have time and then you have infinite, the infinite, you know, the immortality. Okay, infinity and uh Learn to make the distinction between the two and never be in a position where you're waiting for this day to come, for this moment to come, for this person to save you or this job opportunity to make you the whole person you always thought you would be. It's all bullshit because that moment is right now. That moment is when you fall on your face in the pouring rain in the mud and you don't know what else to do so you just laugh, right? 
that moment is when you see a, a puppy dog running up and lick you in the face or, you know, you hit a baseball over the fence or you strike out, whatever that moment might be and you just laugh at yourself. That's that's the eternal moment of the now. Eternity is literally right now and people don't realize it. And they, they're living their lives for Friday and then crying their life away on Sunday night when it's time to return back to work or whatever it is that they have to do to pay the bills. And that's not that's no way of living. Absolutely no way of living at all. So, yeah, I see I see what they're presenting on the screen, on the smartphones, on, you know, on HBO, and this whole thing with Dave Chappelle, and now Joe Rogan is starting to stand up. I'm, I'm kind of proud of Joe Rogan, man. He's kind of coming around, and uh, he was giving it to Sanjay Gupta, and he called him an effing liar, and he's kind of starting to stand up, because the, even the people with money now are realizing that if this plan that they're trying to perpetrate on us turns around, the first ones are going to go after are people with money. So it's it's a little crazy. It's a little craziness, man. But if you see it for what it is, okay, then at that point you'll be able to adjust your perception in a way that you're going to realize that this is just a game that's being played, and they're making a play. It's always about getting our louche, getting our energy, and and imposing upon us like turning the key in our lock to open us up when I don't I don't have a lock I don't have a key that that fits me you know what I mean mine is the infinite mine is Jesus mine is God and, and the eternal you know and and I try to live in that context where I'm aware and I'm here in space and time with its limits but I also have my my um, consciousness about the infinite and the eternal such as God and, and, and my true purpose living here. So, yeah, I don't want to get too crazy with this. I just want to, you know, having uh, put out a show in a month, so I want to just put out some of my ideas and my thoughts and what's what's popping with me over here. And, uh, yeah, man, so we're just going to continue on with the show. And I really do want to thank you for listening and namaste, man. And reach out to me, you know, send me some DMs on Instagram, on, on my email. Visit my Instagram videos that I have and my YouTube page. I got a couple of really good videos on Joseph Campbell, which I'm going to play a couple of clips of him on this episode. And Joseph Campbell is like a protege of Carl Jung. You know, the shadow aspects and the archetypes and stuff. So Campbell, Campbell is deep, 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 man. Got to check him out. So again, peace, love, and understanding. And stay conscious of the infinite and, and the uh, infinite uh, love and power of God that you have within you. So, yeah, namaste and let's get into it. This after-school presentation was written and narrated by Academy of Ideas. Check out their YouTube channel for more of their videos. The masses have never thirsted after truth. They turn aside from evidence that is not to their taste, preferring to deify error if error seduce them. Whoever can supply them with illusions is easily their master. Whoever attempts to destroy their illusions is always their victim. According to the psychologist Carl Jung, the greatest threat to civilization lies not with the forces of nature, nor with any physical disease, but with our inability to deal with the forces of our own psyche. We are our own worst enemies, or as the Latin proverb puts it, Man is a wolf to man. In Civilization in Transition, Jung states that this proverb is a sad yet eternal truism.
and our wolf-like tendencies come most prominently into play at those times of history when mental illness becomes the norm rather than the exception in a society, a situation which Jung termed a psychic epidemic. Indeed, it is becoming ever more obvious, he writes, that it is not famine, not earthquakes, not microbes, not cancer, but man himself, who is man's greatest danger to man, for the simple reason that there is no adequate protection against psychic epidemics, which are infinitely more devastating than the worst of natural catastrophes. In this video we are going to explore the most dangerous of all psychic epidemics, the mass psychosis. A mass psychosis is an epidemic of madness, and it occurs when a large portion of a society loses touch with reality and descends into delusions. Such a phenomenon is not a thing of fiction. Two examples of mass psychoses are the American and European witch hunts of the 16th and 17th centuries, and the rise of totalitarianism in the 20th century. During the witch hunts, thousands of individuals, mostly women, were killed, not for any crimes they committed, but because they became the scapegoats of societies gone mad. In some Swiss villages, writes Francis Hill, there were scarcely any women left alive after the frenzy had finally burned itself out. When a mass psychosis occurs, the results are devastating. Jung studied this phenomenon and wrote that the individuals who make up the infected society become morally and spiritually inferior. They sink unconsciously to an inferior intellectual level. They become more unreasonable, irresponsible, emotional, erratic, and unreliable, and worst of all, crimes the individual alone could never stand are freely committed by the group smitten by madness. What makes matters worse is that those suffering from a mass psychosis are unaware of what is occurring. For just as an individual gone mad cannot step out of his mind to observe the errors in his ways, so too there is no Archimedean point from which those living through a mass psychosis can observe their collective madness. But what causes a mass psychosis? To answer this question we must first explore what drives an individual mad. While there are many potential triggers of madness, such as an excessive use of drugs or alcohol, brain injuries and other illnesses, these physical causes will not concern us here. Our concern is with psychological, or what are called psychogenic triggers, as these are the most common culprits of the mass psychosis. The most prevalent psychogenic cause of a psychosis is a flood of negative emotions, such as fear or anxiety, that drives an individual into a state of panic. When in a state of panic, an individual will naturally seek relief, as it is too mentally and physically draining to subsist in this hyper-emotional state. While escaping from the state of panic can be accomplished through adaptive means, such as facing up to and defeating the fear-generating threat, another way to escape is to undergo a psychotic break. A psychotic break is not a descent into a state of greater disorder, as many believe, but a reordering of one's experiential world, which blends fact and fiction, or delusions and reality, in a way that helps end the feelings of panic. Silvano Arietti, one of the 20th century's foremost authorities on schizophrenia, explains the psychogenic steps that lead to madness. Firstly, there is the phase of panic, when the patient starts to perceive things in a different way, is frightened on account of it, appears confused, and does not know how to explain the strange things that are happening. The next step is what Arietti calls a phase of psychotic insight, 
whereby an individual succeeds in putting things together by devising a pathological way of seeing reality which allows him to explain his abnormal experiences. The phenomenon is called insight because the patient finally sees meaning and relations in his experiences. But the insight is psychotic because it is based on delusions, not on adaptive and life-promoting ways of relating to whatever threats precipitated the panic. The delusions, in other words, allow the panic-stricken individual to escape from the flood of negative emotions, but at the cost of losing touch with reality, and for this reason, Arietti says that a psychotic break can be viewed as an abnormal way of dealing with an extreme state of anxiety. If a panic-triggering flood of negative emotions in a weak and vulnerable individual can trigger a psychotic break, then a mass psychosis can result when a population of weak and vulnerable individuals is driven into a state of panic by threats real, imagined, or fabricated. But as delusions can take many forms, and as madness can manifest in countless ways, the specific manner in which a mass psychosis unfolds will differ based on the historical and cultural context of the infected society. But in the modern era, it is the mass psychosis of totalitarianism that appears to be the greatest threat. Totalitarianism, writes Arthur Verslewis, is the modern phenomenon of total centralized state power, coupled with the obliteration of individual human rights. In the totalized state, there are those in power, and there are the objectified masses, the victims. In a totalitarian society, the population is divided into two groups, the rulers and the ruled, and both groups undergo a pathological transformation. The rulers are elevated to an almost godlike status, which is diametrically opposed to our nature as imperfect beings who are easily corrupted by power. The masses, on the other hand, are transformed into the dependent subjects of these pathological rulers and take on a psychologically regressed and childlike status. Hannah Arendt, one of the 20th century's preeminent scholars of this form of rule, called totalitarianism an attempted transformation of human nature itself. But this attempted transformation only turns sound minds into sick minds, for as the Dutch medical doctor who studied the mental effects of living under totalitarianism wrote, There is in fact much that is comparable between the strange reactions of the citizens of totalitarianism and their culture as a whole, on the one hand, and the reactions of the sick schizophrenic on the other. The social transformation that unfolds under totalitarianism is built upon and sustained by delusions. For only deluded men and women regress to the childlike status of obedient and submissive subjects and hand over complete control of their lives to politicians and bureaucrats. Only a deluded ruling class will believe that they possess the knowledge, wisdom, and acumen to completely control society in a top-down manner. And only when under the spell of delusions would anyone believe that a society composed of power-hungry rulers on the one hand and a psychologically regressed population on the other, will lead to anything other than mass suffering and social ruin. But what triggers the psychosis of totalitarianism? As was explored in the previous video of this series, the mass psychosis of totalitarianism begins in a society's ruling class. The individuals that make up this class, be it politicians, bureaucrats, or crony capitalists, are very prone to delusions that augment their power, 
and no delusion is more attractive to the power-hungry than the delusion that they can and should control and dominate a society. When a ruling elite becomes possessed by a political ideology of this sort, be it communism, fascism, or technocracy, the next step is to induce a population into accepting their rule by infecting them with the mass psychosis of totalitarianism. This psychosis has been induced many times throughout history, and as Mirlu explains, it is simply a question of reorganizing and manipulating collective feelings in the proper way. The general method by which the members of a ruling elite can accomplish this end is called menticide, with the etymology of this word being a killing of the mind, and as Mirlu further explains, menticide is an old crime against the human mind and spirit, but systematized anew. It is an organized system of psychological intervention and judicial perversion through which a ruling class can imprint their own opportunistic thoughts upon the minds of those they plan to use and destroy. Priming a population for the crime of menticide begins with the sowing of fear. When an individual is flooded with negative emotions, such as fear or anxiety, he or she is very susceptible to a descent into the delusions of madness. Threats real, imagined, or fabricated can be used to sow fear but a particularly effective technique is to use waves of terror. Under this technique, the sowing of fear is staggered with periods of calm, but each of these periods of calm is followed by the manufacturing of an even more intense spell of fear. And on and on, the process goes. Or as Mirlu writes, Each wave of terrorizing creates its effects more easily after a breathing spell than the one that preceded it because people are still disturbed by their previous experience. Morality becomes lower and lower, and the psychological effects of each new propaganda campaign become stronger. It reaches a public already softened up. While fear primes a population for menticide, the use of propaganda to spread misinformation and to promote confusion with respect to the source of the threats and the nature of the crisis, helps to break down the minds of the masses. Government officials and their lackeys in the media can use contradictory reports, nonsensical information, and even blatant lies, as the more they confuse, the less capable will a population be to cope with the crisis and diminish their fear in a rational and adaptive manner. Confusion, in other words, heightens the susceptibility of a descent into the delusions of totalitarianism. Or as Mirlu explains, logic can be met with logic, while illogic cannot. It confuses those who think straight. The big lie and monotonously repeated nonsense have more emotional appeal than logic and reason. While the people are still searching for a reasonable counter-argument to the first lie, the totalitarians can assault them with another. Never before in history have such effective means existed to manipulate a society into the psychosis of totalitarianism. Smartphones and social media, television and the internet, all in conjunction with algorithms that quickly censor the flow of unwanted information, allow those in power to easily assault the minds of the masses. What is more, the addictive nature of these technologies means that many people voluntarily subject themselves to the ruling elite's propaganda with a remarkable frequency. Modern technology, explains Mirlu teaches man to take for granted the world he is looking at. 
he takes no time to retreat and reflect. Technology lures him on, dropping him into its wheels and movements. No rest, no meditation, no reflection, no conversation. The senses are continually overloaded with stimuli. Man doesn't learn to question his world anymore. The screen offers him answers, ready-made. But there is a further step the would-be totalitarian rulers can take to increase the chance of a totalitarian psychosis. And this is to isolate the victims and to disrupt normal social interactions. When alone and lacking normal interactions with friends, family, and co-workers, an individual becomes far more susceptible to delusions for several reasons. Firstly, they lose contact with the corrective force of the positive example. For not everyone is tricked by the machinations of the ruling elite, and the individuals who see through the propaganda can help free others from the menticidal assault. If, however, isolation is enforced, the power of these positive examples greatly diminishes. But another reason that isolation increases the efficacy of menticide is because, like many other species, human beings are more easily conditioned into new patterns of thought and behavior when isolated. Or as Mirlu explains with regards to the physiologist Ivan Pavlov's work on behavioral conditioning, Pavlov made another significant discovery. The conditioned reflex could be developed most easily in a quiet laboratory with a minimum of disturbing stimuli. Every trainer of animals knows this from his own experience. Isolation and the patient repetition of stimuli are required to tame wild animals. The totalitarians have followed this rule. They know that they can condition their political victims most quickly if they are kept in isolation. Alone, confused, and battered by waves of terror, a population under an attack of menticide descends into a hopeless and vulnerable state. The never-ending stream of propaganda turns minds once capable of rational thought into playhouses of irrational forces. And with chaos swirling around them and within them, the masses crave a return to a more ordered world. The would-be totalitarians can now take the decisive step. They can offer a way out and a return to order in a world that seems to be moving rapidly in the opposite direction. But all this comes at a price. The masses must give up their freedom and cede control of all aspects of life to the ruling elite. They must relinquish their capacity to be self-reliant individuals who are responsible for their own lives and become submissive and obedient subjects. The masses, in other words, must descend into the delusions of the totalitarian psychosis. The totalitarian systems of the 20th century represent a kind of collective psychosis. Whether gradually or suddenly, reason and common human decency are no longer possible in such a system. There is only a pervasive atmosphere of terror and a projection of the enemy imagined to be in our midst. Thus society turns on itself, urged on by the ruling authorities. But the order of a totalitarian world is a pathological order. By enforcing a strict conformity and requiring a blind obedience from the citizenry, totalitarianism rids the world of the spontaneity that produces many of life's joys and the creativity that drives society forward. The total control of this form of rule, no matter under what name it is branded, be it rule by scientists and doctors, politicians and bureaucrats, or a dictator, 
breeds stagnation, destruction, and death on a mass scale. And so perhaps the most important question facing the world is how can totalitarianism be prevented? And if a society has been induced into the early stages of this mass psychosis, can the effects be reversed? While one can never be sure of the prognosis of a collective madness, there are steps that can be taken to help effectuate a cure. This task, however, necessitates many different approaches from many different people. For just as the menticidal attack is multi-pronged, so too must be the counter-attack. According to Carl Jung, for those of us who wish to help return sanity to an insane world, the first step is to bring order to our own minds and to live in a way that provides inspiration for others to follow. It is not for nothing that our age cries out for the Redeemer personality, for the one who can emancipate himself from the grip of the collective psychosis and save at least his own soul, who lights a beacon of hope for others, proclaiming that here is at least one man who has succeeded in extricating himself from the fatal identity with the group psyche. But assuming one is living in a manner free of the grip of the psychosis, there are further steps that can be taken. Information that counters the propaganda should be spread as far and as wide as possible, for the truth is more powerful than the fiction and falsities peddled by the would-be totalitarian rulers, and so their success is in part contingent on their ability to censor the free flow of information. Another tactic is to use humor and ridicule to delegitimize the ruling elite. Or as Mirlu explains, we must learn to treat the demagogue and aspirant dictators in our midst with the weapon of ridicule. The demagogue himself is almost incapable of humor of any sort, and if we treat him with humor, he will begin to collapse. A tactic recommended by Vaclav Havel, a political dissident under Soviet communist rule, who later became president of Czechoslovakia, is the construction of what are called parallel structures. A parallel structure is any form of organization, business, institution, technology, or creative pursuit that exists physically within a totalitarian society, yet morally outside of it. In communist Czechoslovakia, Havel noted that these parallel structures were more effective at combating totalitarianism than political action. Furthermore, when enough parallel structures are created, a second culture, or parallel society, spontaneously forms and functions as an enclave of freedom and sanity within a totalitarian world, or as Havel explains in his book, The Power of the Powerless. What else are parallel structures than an area where a different life can be lived? A life that is in harmony with its own aims, and which in turn structures itself in harmony with those aims? What else are those initial attempts at social self-organization than the efforts of a certain part of society to rid itself of the self-sustaining aspects of totalitarianism, and thus, to extricate itself radically from its involvement in the totalitarian system. But above all else, what is required to prevent a full descent into the madness of totalitarianism is action by as many people as possible. For just as the ruling elite do not sit around passively, but instead take deliberate steps to increase their power, so too, an active and concerted effort must be made to move the world back in the direction of freedom. This can be an immense challenge in a world falling prey to the delusions of totalitarianism, but as Thomas Paine noted, Tyranny, like hell, 
is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. Saturday, April 8, 1962. In our conversations, Don Juan consistently used or referred to the phrase man of knowledge, but never explained what he meant by it. I asked him about it. A man of knowledge is one who has followed truthfully the hardships of learning, he said. A man who has, without rushing or without faltering, gone as far as he can in unraveling the secrets of power and knowledge. Can anyone be a man of knowledge? No, not anyone. Then what must a man do to become a man of knowledge? He must challenge and defeat his four natural enemies. The enemies a man encounters on the path of learning to become a man of knowledge are truly formidable. Most men succumb to them. What kind of enemies are they, Don Juan? He refused to talk about the enemies. He said it would be a long time before the subject would make any sense to me. I tried to keep the topic alive and asked him if he thought I could become a man of knowledge. He said no man could possibly tell that for sure. Sunday, April 15, 1962. As I was getting ready to leave, I decided to ask him once more about the enemies of a man of knowledge. I argued that I could not return for some time, and it would be a good idea to write down what he had to say and then think about it while I was away. He hesitated for a while, but then began to talk. When a man starts to learn, he's never clear about his objectives. His purpose is faulty. His intent is vague. He hopes for rewards that will never materialize for he knows nothing of the hardships of learning. He slowly begins to learn, bit by bit at first, then in big chunks, and his thoughts soon clash. What he learns is never what he pictured or imagined, and so he begins to be afraid. Learning is never what one expects. Every step of learning is a new task, and the fear the man is experiencing begins to mount mercilessly, unyieldingly. His purpose becomes a battlefield, and thus he has stumbled upon the first of his natural enemies, fear, a terrible enemy, treacherous and difficult to overcome. It remains concealed at every turn of the way, prowling, waiting, and if the man, terrified in its presence, runs away, his enemy will have put an end to his quest. What will happen to the man if he runs away in fear? Nothing happens to him except that he will never learn. He will never become a man of knowledge. He will perhaps be a bully or a harmless, scared man. At any rate, he will be a defeated man. His first enemy will have put an end to his cravings. And what can he do to overcome fear? The answer is very simple. He must not run away. He must defy his fear, and in spite of it, he must take the next step in learning, and the next, and the next, he must be fully afraid, and yet he must not stop. That is the rule. And the moment will come when his first enemy retreats. But won't the man be afraid again if something new happens to him? No. Once a man has vanquished fear, he's free from it for the rest of his life. Because instead of fear, he's acquired clarity. A clarity of mind which erases fear. By then a man knows his desires. He knows how to satisfy those desires. 
He can anticipate the new steps of learning, and a sharp clarity surrounds everything. The man feels that nothing is concealed. And thus he has encountered his second enemy, clarity. That clarity of mind which is so hard to obtain dispels fear, but also blinds. It forces the man never to doubt himself. It is like something incomplete. If the man yields to this make-believe power, he succumbed to a second enemy and will fumble with learning. He will be clear as long as he lives, but he will no longer learn or yearn for anything. But what does he have to do to avoid being defeated? He must do what he did with fear. He must defy his clarity and use it only to see. And the moment will come when he will understand that his clarity was only a point before his eyes, he will know at this point that the power he's been pursuing for so long is finally his. He can do with it whatever he pleases. His ally is at his command. His wish is the rule. He sees all that is around him, but he has also come across his third enemy, power. A man at this stage hardly notices his third enemy closing in on him, and suddenly, without knowing, he will certainly have lost the battle. His enemy will have turned him into a cruel, capricious man. Will he lose his power? No, he will never lose his clarity or his power. Well, what then will distinguish him from a man of knowledge? A man who is defeated by power dies without really knowing how to handle it. Power is only a burden upon his fate. Such a man has no command over himself and cannot tell when or how to use his power. Well, how can he defeat his third enemy, Don Juan? He has to defy it, deliberately. He has to come to realize the power he has seemingly conquered is in reality never his. He must keep himself in line at all times, handling carefully and faithfully all that he has learned. Thus he will have defeated his third enemy. The man will be by then at the end of his journey of learning, and almost without warning he will come upon the last of his enemies old age. This enemy is the cruelest of all, the one he won't be able to defeat completely, but only fight away. But if the man sloughs off his tiredness and lives his fate through, he can then be called a man of knowledge, if only for the brief moment when he succeeds in fighting off his last invincible enemy. That moment of clarity, power, and knowledge is enough. Why myths? Why should we care about myths? What do they have to do with my life? Well, my first answer would be, well, John, live your life. It's a good life. You don't need this. Uh, I don't believe in um, being interested in subjects because they're said to be important and interesting. I believe in being caught by it somehow or other. Uh, but you may find that uh, with a proper introduction, this uh, subject will, will catch you. And so uh, what can it do for you when it does catch you? These bits of information from ancient times, which have to do with the themes that have supported man's life, built civilizations, informed religions over the millennia, have to do with deep inner problems, inner mysteries, inner uh, thresholds of passage. And if you don't know 
what the guide signs are along the way, you have to work it out yourself. But once this catches you, there is always such a feeling from one or another of these traditions of information of a deep, rich, life-vivifying sort that you, you want to give it up. So myths are stories of, of the search by men and women through the ages for meaning, for significance, to make life signify, to touch the eternal, to understand the mysterious, to find out who we are. People say that what we're all seeking is a meaning for life. I don't think that's what we're really seeking. I think what we're seeking is an experience of being alive so that uh, the life experiences that we have on the purely uh, physical plane will have resonances within that are those of our own innermost being and reality. And uh, so that we actually feel the rapture of being alive. Uh, that's what it's all finally about. And that's what these uh, clues help us to find within ourselves. Myths are clues? Myths are clues to the spiritual potentialities of the human life. What we're capable of knowing within? Yes. And experiencing with it. Yes. I, I liked your definition. You changed the definition of a myth from the search for meaning to the experience of, the experience, of meaning. Experience. Experience of life. The experience of life. The mind has to do with meaning. In here, what's the meaning of a flower? That uh, Zen story of the Sermon of the Buddha when his whole company was gathered and he simply lifted a flower. And there was only one man, Kashyapa, who gave him a sign with his eye that he understood what was said. What's the meaning of the universe? What's the meaning of a flea? The, uh, it's just there. That's it. And your own meaning is that you're there. Now we are so engaged in doing things to achieve purposes of outer value uh, that we forget that the inner value, the, the rapture that is associated with being alive is what it's all about. Now, we want to think about God. God is a thought. God is a name. God is an idea. But its reference is to something that transcends all thinking. The ultimate mystery of being is beyond all categories of thought. My friend Heinrich Zimmer of years ago used to say, the best things can't be told because they transcend thought. The second best are misunderstood because those are the thoughts that are supposed to refer to that which can't be thought about, you know? And one gets stuck with the thoughts. The third best are what we talk about, you see? <laughs> and a myth is that field of reference, metaphors referring to what is absolutely transcendent. What can't be known. What can't be known. Or can't be named. Yes. Except in our own feeble attempt to clothe it in language. And the ultimate word in our language for that which uh, is transcendent is God. Do you remember what went through your mind the first time you saw Michelangelo's creation? By the time I uh, became aware of that, my notion of divinity was uh, not quite so personal, you know. The idea of God, that he's a bearded old man of some kind with certain not very pleasant temperament. 
That is, I would say, a sort of materialistic way of talking about the transcendent. There's just the opposite of it found uh, on an island in the harbor of Bombay from around the 8th century. This is a wonderful cave. You enter the cave from a, a bright sky. Of course, moving into the darkness, your eyes are blanked out. But if you just keep walking slowly, gradually the eyes adjust, and this enormous thing, it's about 19 feet high and 19 feet across, the central head is the mask of eternity. This is the mask of God. Mask of eternity. That is the metaphor through which eternity is to be experienced as a radiance. And these other two figures? Whenever one moves out of the uh, transcendent, one comes into a field of opposites. These two pairs of opposites come forth as male and female from the two sides. One has eaten of the tree of the knowledge, not only of good and evil, but of male and female, of right and wrong, of this and that, and light and dark. Everything in the field of time is dual, past and future, dead and alive. All this, being and non-being, is, isn't. And what's the significance of them being beside the mask of God, the mask of eternity? What is this sculpture saying to us? The mask represents the middle and the two represent the two opposites and uh, they always come in pairs and put your mind in the middle. Most of us put our minds on the side of the good against what we think of as evil. It was Heraclitus, I think, who said, for God, all things are good and right and just, but for man, some things are right and others are not. You're in the field of time when you're man. And one of the problems of life is to live in the uh, realization of both terms. That's to say, I know the center. And I know that good and evil are simply temporal apparitions. Well, are some myths more or less true than others? They're true in different senses, do you see? Uh, here's a whole mythology based on the insight that transcends duality. Ours is a mythology that's based on the insight of duality. And so our religion tends to be ethical in its accent. Sin and atonement, right and wrong. It started with a sin, you see. In other words, moving out of the mythological zone the garden of paradise where there is no time and where men and women don't even know that they're different from each other. The, the two are just uh, creatures. And uh, God and man are uh, practically the same. He walks in the cool of the evening in the garden where we are. And then they eat the apple, the knowledge of the pairs of opposites. And man and woman then cover their shame. They're different. God and man. They're different. Man and nature is against man. I once heard a wonderful lecture by Daisetsu Suzuki. You remember this wonderful old Zen philosopher who was over here? He, he was in his 90s. He started a lecture in Switzerland that I heard in Ascona. He stood up with his hands on his side and he said, God against man, man against God, man against nature, nature against man, nature against God, God against nature. 
very funny religion. <laughs> <laughs> now, in the other mythologies, one puts oneself in accord with the world. If the world is a mixture of good and evil, you do not put yourself in accord with it. You identify with the good and you fight against the evil. And this is a religious system which belongs to the Near East following Zarathustra's time. It's in the biblical tradition uh, all the way in Christianity and Islam as well. This business of not being with nature. And we speak with a sort of derogation of the nature religions. You see, with that fall in the garden, nature was regarded as corrupt. There's a myth for you that corrupts the whole world for us. Uh, and every spontaneous act is sinful because nature is corrupt and has to be corrected, must not be yielded to. You get a totally different civilization, a totally different way of living according to your myth as to whether nature is fallen or whether nature is itself uh, a manifestation of divinity and the spirit being the revelation of the divinity that's inherent in nature. But don't you think that Americans, modern Americans, have rejected this idea, this Indian idea, this ancient idea of nature as revealing the divinity because it would have kept us from achieving dominance over nature? Uh, yeah, but that's the biblical condemnation of nature that they inherited from their own religion and brought with them. Uh, the, uh, God is not in nature. God is separate from nature, and nature is not God. And this distinction between God and the world is uh, not to be found in, in basic Hinduism or Buddhism either. I'll never forget the experience I had when I was in Japan. To be in a place that never heard of the fall in the Garden of Eden, to be in a place where I can read in one of the Shinto texts, the processes of nature cannot be evil. When every impulse, every natural impulse, is uh, not to be corrected, but to be sublimated, you know, to be beautified. And the glorious interest in the, in the beauty of nature and cooperation with nature and coordination so that in some of those gardens you don't know where nature begins and art ends. This to me was a tremendous experience and it's another mythology. Speaking of different mythologies, let's just have a little fun here. I, I, I took these from your atlas. Oh, yes. I'll, I'll read Genesis. I'll read from Genesis and then you identify and read from the, from the corresponding oh, text. Oh, yes. Genesis, Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Now, this is from a legend of the Basari people of West Africa. Unumbote made a human being. Its name was man. Unumbote next made an antelope named antelope. Unumbote made a snake named snake. And Unumbote said to them, the earth has not yet been pounded. You must pound the ground smooth where you are sitting. Unumbote gave them seeds of all kinds and said, go plant these. And Genesis 1. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And from the Upanishad, then he realized, 
I indeed am this creation, for I have poured it forth for myself. In that way he became this creation, and verily, he who knows this becomes in this creation a creator. That's the clincher there. Yeah. When you know this, then you've identified with the creative principle yourself, which is the God power in the world, which means in you. It's beautiful. What do you think we're looking for when we subscribe to one of these theories of creation, one of these stories of creation? What are we looking for? Well, I think what we're looking for is a way of experiencing the world in which we are living that will open to us the transcendent that informs it and at the same time informs ourselves within it. That's what people want. That's what the soul asks for. You mean we're looking for some accord with the mystery that informs all things, that what you call that vast ground of silence which we all share? Yes, but not only to, to find it, but to find it actually in our, in our environment, in our world, to recognize it, to have some kind of instruction that will enable us to see the divine presence. In the world and in us. And in India, this wonderful Anjali, this greeting, you know what that means? No. That's the greeting of prayer, isn't it? That's what oh, we yeah. use for prayer. Hey, greet you with that. That's greeting the God that's in you as you come in. These people are aware of the divine presence. When you enter an Indian home as a guest, you are a visiting deity and you feel it by God the way they treat you. Uh, it's, uh, it's something in the way of a hospitality that you don't get where you have simply one person and another person. It's a recognition of the identity. But weren't people who told these stories and believed them and acted on them asking far more simple questions, you know, who made the world? How was the world made? Why was the world made? Aren't, aren't these the questions that these creation stories are trying to address? No. Uh, it's through that answer that they see that the Creator is present in the whole world. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, this story that we've just read, uh, I see that I am this creation, says the God. When you see that God says He is the creation and then you are a creature, well, the God is within you and the man you're talking to also. And so there's that realization, two aspects of the one divinity. Accord again, harmony again. Wonderful thing. Yeah. Let me ask you some questions about these common features in these stories, the, the significance of the forbidden fruit. Well, there's this standard folk tale motif called the, the one forbidden thing. Remember in Bluebeard, don't open that closet, you know? And then one always does it. And in the Old Testament story, God gives the one forbidden thing. And he knows very well, I, now, I'm, now I'm interpreting God, <laughs> uh, he knows very well that man's going to uh, eat the forbidden fruit. But it's by doing that that man becomes the initiator of his own life. Life really begins with that. I also find in some of these early stories uh, the human ten tendency to uh, find someone to blame. Uh, let me, yeah. read, let me read Genesis 1, then I'll ask you to read uh, one from the Basara legend. <laughs> right. Genesis 1, and God said, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. I mean, you talk about 
buck passing, it starts very early. That's right. And then there's the Basari legend. It's been tough on serpents, too. (laughs) One day, Snake said, we too should eat these fruits. Why must we go hungry? Antelope said, but we don't know anything about this fruit. Then man and his wife took some of the fruit and ate it. Unumbate came down from the sky and asked, who ate the fruit? They answered, we did. Unumbate asked, who told you that you could eat that fruit? They replied, Snake did. <laughs> it's the same <laughs> Poor story. Snake. It's the same story. What do you story. make of this? That in all of these stories, the principal actors are pointing to someone else as the initiator of the fall. Yeah, but it turns out to be Snake. And, and, and Snake, in both of these stories, is the symbol of life throwing off the past and uh, continuing to live. Why? The power of life, because the snake sheds its skin, just as the moon sheds its shadow. The snake in most cultures is positive. Even the most poisonous thing in India, the cobra, is a sacred animal. And uh, the serpent, the Naga, the serpent king, Nagaraja, is the next thing to the Buddha. Because the serpent represents the power of life in the field of time to throw off death. And the Buddha represents the power of life in the field of eternity to be eternally alive. Now, I saw a a fantastic thing of a Burmese priestess, a, a snake priestess, who had to bring rain to her people by calling a king cobra from his den and kissing him three times on the nose. There was the cobra, the giver of life, the giver of rain, which is of life, as a divine, positive, not negative figure. The Christian story has turned it around because the serpent was the seducer. Well, what what that amounts to is a uh, refusal to affirm life. Life is evil in this view. Every... Every natural impulse is sinful unless you've been baptized or circumcised in this uh, tradition that we've inherited, for heaven's sakes. By um, having been the tempter, women have paid a great price because in mythology, some of this mythology, they are the ones who led to the downfall. Of course they did. I mean, they represent life. Man doesn't enter life except by woman. And so it is woman who brings us into the world of polarities and uh, a pair of opposites and suffering and all. But I think it's a really childish attitude to say no to life with all its pain, you know? Uh, To say this is something that should not have been. Schopenhauer, in one of his uh, marvelous chapters, I think it's in The World's Well and Idea, says life is something that should not have been. It is in its very essence uh, and, and character, uh, a terrible thing to consider. This business of living by killing and eating. I mean, it's in sin in terms of all ethical judgments all the time. As Zorba says, uh, you know, trouble, life is trouble. That's it. Only death is no trouble. And when people say to me, you know, do you have uh, optimism about the world, you know, how terrible it is? I said, yes, just say, it's great just the way it is. But doesn't that lead to a rather passive attitude in the face of evil, in the face of wrong? You participate in it. Whatever you do is evil for somebody. 
But explain that for the audience. I mean, you say yes to that which you... Well, when I was in India, there was a man whose name was Sri Krishna Menon, and his uh, mystical name was Aunt Mananda, and he was in Trivandrum, and I went to Trivandrum. And uh, I had uh, the wonderful privilege of sitting face to face with him as I'm sitting here with you. And the first, question, the first thing he said to me is, do you have a question? And because uh, the teacher there always answers questions, he doesn't tell you what anything, he answers. And um, I said, yes, I have a question. I said, since in Hindu thinking, all the universe is divine, is a manifestation of divinity itself, how could we say no to anything in the world? How could we say no to brutality? to stupidity, to vulgarity, to uh, thoughtlessness. And he said, for you and me, you must say yes. Well, I had learned from my uh, friends who were students of his that uh, that happened to have been the first question he asked his guru. <laughs> and we had a wonderful talk for about uh, an hour there on this, this theme of the affirmation of the world. And it uh, confirmed me in a feeling I have had that who are we to judge? And it seems to me that uh, this is one of the great teachings of Jesus. Well, I, I see now what you mean in one respect. In, in some classic Christian doctrine, the world is to be despised. Life is to be redeemed in the hereafter. It is heaven where our rewards come. And mm. if you affirm that which you deplore, as you say, you're affirming the world, which is our, our eternity of the moment. That's what I would say. Eternity isn't some later time. Eternity isn't a long time. Eternity has nothing to do with time. Eternity is that dimension of here and now, which thinking in time cuts out. This is it. This, this is, is it. This is my... If you don't get it here, you won't get it anywhere. And the experience of eternity right here and now is the function of life. There's a wonderful formula that the Buddhists have for the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva, the one whose being, Sattva, is illumination, Bodhi, who realizes his identity with eternity and at the same time his participation in time. And the attitude is not to withdraw from the world when you realize how horrible it is, but to realize that this horror is simply the foreground of, of, of a wonder. And uh, come back and participate in it. All life is sorrowful is the first Buddhist saying, and it is. I mean, it wouldn't be life if there were not temporality involved, which is sorrow, loss, loss, loss. That's a pessimistic note. Well, uh, I mean, you've got to say yes to it and say it's great this way. I mean, this is the way God intended it. The, um, you don't really believe that? But this is the way it is. And I don't believe anybody intended it, but this is the way it is. And uh, Joyce's wonderful line, you know, uh, history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake. And the way to awake from it is not to be afraid and uh, to recognize as uh, I was, did in my conversation with that Hindu guru or teacher that I told you of, that all of this as it is, is as it has to be, and it is a manifestation of the eternal presence in the world. Uh, the, the end of things always is painful. Pain is part of their being a world at all. 
But if one accepted that isn't the ultimate conclusion to say, well, I, I won't try to reform any laws or fight any battles or... I didn't any, say that. Isn't the logical... Couldn't one draw that, though, the philosophy of nihilism? Well, that's not the necessary thing to, to draw. Uh, you could say, I will participate in this row, and I will join the army, and I will go to war. I'll do the best I can. I, I will participate in the game. It's a wonderful, wonderful opera, uh, except that it hurts. And that wonderful Irish saying, you know, is this a private fight or can anybody get into it? Uh, the, uh, this is the way uh, life is. And the, the hero is the one who can, can participate in it decently, in the way of nature, not in the way of personal rancor, revenge, or anything of the kind. Let me tell you one story here of a samurai warrior, a Japanese warrior, who had the duty to avenge the murder of his overlord. And he actually, after some time, found and cornered the man who had murdered his overlord. And he was about to deal with him with his samurai sword when this man in the corner, in a passion of terror, spat in his face and the samurai sheathed the sword and walked away. Why did he do that? Why? Because he was made angry, and if he had killed that man, then it would have been a personal act. It was another kind of act. That's what, what he had come to do. Let me tell you what happens to me when I read these stories, no matter the culture of their origin. I feel first this sense of wonder at the uh, spectacle of the human imagination simply groping to try to understand this existence. Does that ever happen to you? I tell you, uh, mythology I think of as the uh, homeland of the muses, the inspirers of art, the inspirers of poetry. And to see life as a poem and yourself participating in a poem is what the myth does for you. What do you mean a poem? I mean a, uh, a vocabulary in the form not of words but of acts and uh, adventures, which is uh, a, a con connotative, which connotes something transcendent of the action here, and which yet informs the whole thing. So that you always feel in accord with the universal being. Well, the interesting thing to me is that far from undermining my faith, your work in mythology has has liberated my faith from the cultural prisons to which it had been sentenced. It liberated my own. I know it's going to do it with everybody who really gets the message. Every mythology, every religion is true in this sense. It is true as metaphorical of the human and cosmic mystery. But when it gets stuck to the metaphor, then you're in trouble. The metaphor being? Well, Jesus ascended to heaven. The story is he ascended bodily to heaven. The story is that his mother, still alive, asleep, ascended to heaven. So this is metaphorical of something. You don't have to throw it away. All you have to find is what it's saying. What do you think it is saying? What it's saying is he didn't go out there. He went in here, which is where you must go too, and, uh, and ascend to heaven through the inward space to that source from which you and all life came. That's the sense of that. But aren't you undermining one of the great cardinal doctrines of the traditional classic Christian faith, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus <clears throat> prefiguring 
our own and overcoming the body with a higher physical truth. Well, that would, that would be what I would call the mistaken reading of the symbol. That's reading it in terms of prose instead of in terms of poetry. That's reading, it in, that's reading a metaphor in terms of the denotation instead of in terms of the connotation. You, you understand that? It's the, a purely literary problem. The poetry gets to the unseen reality. That which is beyond even the concept of reality. It's that, that which transcends all thought. It's putting you there all the time and in some way giving you a, a line to connect with that mystery which you are. And the myths do it, by gosh, they do it. Now, according to the normal way of thinking about the, uh, the Christian religion, uh, we cannot identify with Jesus. We have to imitate Jesus, but to say, I am God, as Jesus said, is for us uh, blasphemy. However, in the Thomas Gospel, Jesus says, he who drinks from my mouth will become as I am, and I shall be he. Wow, that's Buddhism. We are all manifestations of Buddha consciousness, only don't know it. And the Buddha, the word means the one who waked up, bud, to wake, woke up to the fact that he was Buddha consciousness. And we are all to do that to wake up to our Jesus within us. This is blasphemy in the normal way of thinking in Christianity, but it's the very essence of Gnosticism and of the Thomas Gospel. And heaven, that uh, desired goal of most people, is, is within us? Heaven and hell are within us, and all the gods are within us. This is the great realization of the Upanishads of India already in the ninth, millennia, ninth century B.C., all the gods, all the heavens, all the worlds are within us. They are uh, magnified dreams. And what dreams are, are manifestations in image form of the energies of the body in conflict with each other. And uh, that's all myth is. Myth is a, uh, a manifestation in uh, symbolic images, metaphorical images of the energies within us moved by the organs of the body in conflict with each other. This organ wants this, this organ wants this, the brain is one of the organs. So when we dream, are we fishing in some vast ocean of mythology that it we It goes have? down and down and down. And you can get all mixed up with complexes, you know, yeah. things like that, but you're standing on the, uh, the uh, lord of the abyss, really. There's a Polynesian saying that frequently comes to my mind, standing on a whale, fishing for minnows. Uh, we are standing on a whale. The ground of being is the ground of our being. And uh, outward turned, we see all these little problems here, but inward, we are the source of them all. That's the big mystical teaching. You've seen what's happened to primitive societies that are unsettled by white man's civilization. They go to pieces, they disintegrate, they succumb to vice and disease. And isn't that the same thing that's been happening to us since our myths begin to disappear? Absolutely it is. Isn't that why conservative religious folk today are calling for a return to the old-time religion? That's right. I understand their yearning. In my youth, I had fixed stars. They comforted me with their permanence. They gave me a known horizon. 
They told me that there's a loving, kind, and just uh, father out there looking down on me, ready to receive me, thinking of my concerns all the time. Now science, medicine, has made it a, a house cleaning of belief. And I wonder what happens to children who don't have that fixed star, that known horizon, those myths to sustain them. All they have to do is read the newspaper. I mean, it's a mess. But what the myth uh, has to provide, I mean, just on this immediate level of life instruction, the pedagogical aspect of myth, it has to give life models. And the models have to be appropriate to the possibilities of the time in which you're living. And our time has changed, and it's changed, and changed, and continues to change so fast that what was proper 50 years ago is not proper today. So the virtues of the past are the vices of today. And the, uh, the, many of what were thought to be the vices of the past are the necessities of today. And the, the moral order has to catch up with the moral necessities of actual life in time here and now. And that's what it's not doing. And that's why it's ridiculous to go back to the old time religion. A friend of mine composed a song based on uh, the old time religion. Give me the old time religion. Give me let us worship Zarathustra just the way we used to. I'm a Zarathustra booster. He's good enough for me. Let us worship Aphrodite. She's beautiful but flighty. She doesn't wear a nighty, but she's good enough for me. And uh, when you go back to the old-time religion, you're doing something like that. It belongs to another age, another people, another set of human values, another universe. So the old period of the Old Testament, no one had any idea. The world was a little three-layer cake, and the world consisted of something a few hundred miles around the Near Eastern centers there. No one ever heard of the Aztecs, you know, or of the Chinese even. And so those whole peoples were, were not considered even as part of the problem to be dealt with. The world changes then the religion has to be transformed. But it seems to me that is what we are in fact doing. That's in fact what we better do. Yeah. But, uh, but my notion of what uh, the, the real horror today is what you see in Beirut, where you have the three great Western religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and because the three of them have three different names for the same biblical God, they can't get on together. They're stuck with their metaphor and don't realize its reference. So each needs a new myth. It needs its own myth all the way. Love thy enemy, you know? Mm. Open up. Don't judge. Given what you know about human beings, is it conceivable to you that there is a point of wisdom beyond the conflicts of, of truth and illusion by which our lives can be put back together again? That we sure. can develop new models? It's in the religions. All religions are true for their time. If you can find what the truth is and separate it from the temporal inflection, just bring your same old religion into a new set of metaphors, and you've got it. Do you see some new metaphors emerging in the modern medium for the old universal truths that you've talked about, the old story? Well, uh, I think that the, uh, the Star Wars is, is, a, is a valid mythological perspective, and the problem of is the machine and the state is a machine. Is the machine going to crush humanity or serve humanity? And humanity comes not from the machine, but from the heart. Luke, help me take this mask off 
Jedi. I think it was in the uh, Return of the Jedi when Skywalker unmasks his father. The father had been playing one of these machine roles, a state role. He was the uniform, you know? And the removal of that mask was an undeveloped man there. It was kind of a worm. By being executive of a system, one is not developing one's humanity. I think that uh, George Lucas really, really did a beautiful thing there. The idea of, ma of machine is the idea that we want the world to be made in our image and what we think the world ought to be. Well, the first time anybody made a tool, I mean, taking a, a stone and uh, chipping it so that you can handle it, that's the beginning of a machine. It's turning out of nature into your service. But then there comes a time when uh, it, it, it begins to dictate to you. I'm having a bit of this trouble with my computer, actually. Computer? I uh, just bought one a couple of months ago, and uh, I, I can't help thinking of it as having a personality there because it talks back and it, it behaves in a whimsical way and uh, all of that. So I'm, I'm personifying that, that machine. To me, that machine is... Uh, uh, almost alive. I could mythologize that darn thing. There was a wonderful story about, I think, President Eisenhower uh, when the computer was first being built. You remember that story? Eisenhower uh, went into a room full of computers and um, he puts a question to the, these machines. Is there a God? And they all start up and there's all those lights flashing and wheels turning and things like that. And after about 10 minutes of that kind of thing, a voice comes forth and the voice says, now there is. <laughs> well, I um, bought this wonderful machine, IBM machine, and it's, it's there. And I'm rather an authority on God, so I identified the God. And it seems to me an Old Testament God with a lot of rules and no mercy. <laughs> you, you, uh, you it's will, unforgiving. You catch you picking up sticks on Saturday and you're out, that's all. But isn't it possible to develop toward the computer, the computer you're wrestling with at this very moment? Uh, isn't it possible to develop the same kind of attitude of the Pawnee chieftain who said that in the legends of his people, all things speak of Tarawa, all things speak of God? It wasn't a special privileged revelation. God is everywhere in his works, including the computer. Well, indeed so. I mean, the miracle of what happens on that screen, you know, with, with the, the, have you ever looked inside one of those things? No. You can't believe it. It's a, it's a whole hierarchy of angels, all, all on, on, on slats. And uh, those little tubes, uh, those are miracles. Those are miracles. They, they are. One can feel a sense of awe. Well, I've had a revelation from my computer about mythology, though. You buy a certain software, and there's a whole set of signals that lead to the achievement of your aim. You know, and uh, once you've set it for, let's say, DW3, <laughs> and, uh, if you begin fooling around with signals that belong to another system, they just won't work, that's all. You, you have a system there, a code, a determined code that requires you to use certain terms. Now, similarly in mythology, each religion is a kind of software <laughs> that has its own set of signals and will work. They, it, it'll work. But suppose you've chosen this one. Now, if a person is really involved in a religion and really building his life on it, it he better stay with the software that he's got. 
But a chap like myself, who likes to play with the, the, the various softwares, I can uh, run around, but I probably will never have an experience comparable to that of a saint. But do you think that the machine is inventing new myths for us, or that we with the machine are inventing new myths? Is the machine becoming... No, the myth has the to incorporate the machine, just as uh, the old myths incorporated the tools that people used. The, uh, the forms of the tools and so forth are associated with, uh, with power systems that are involved in the culture. We have not a mythology that incorporates these. The new powers are being, so to say, uh, surprisingly announced to us by what the machines can do. We can't have a mythology for a long, long time to come. Things are changing too fast. Uh, the environment in which we're living is changing too fast for it to become mythologized. You must realize... What is, how do we live without myths then? Well, we're doing it. The individual has to find the aspect of myth that has to do with the conduct of his life. There are a number of services that myths serve. Uh, the, the basic one is opening the world to the dimension of mystery. It, if you lose that, you've, you don't have a mythology to realize the mystery that underlies all forms. But then there comes the cosmological aspect of myth, seeing that mystery as manifest through all things. So the universe becomes, as it were, a holy picture. You are always addressed to the transcendent mystery through that. But then there's another function, and that's the sociological one, of validating and maintaining a certain society. That is the side of the thing that has taken over in our world. What do you mean? Ethical laws. The laws of life in the society, all of Yahweh's pages and pages and pages of what kind of clothes to wear, how to behave to each other and all that. You see, in terms of the uh, values of this particular society. But then there's a fourth function of myth, and this is the one that I think today everyone must try to relate to. That's the pedagogical function, how to live a human lifetime under any circumstances. Myth can tell you that. And there's a wonderful story in, in, uh, in one of the Upanishads, uh, the Brahmavivata Upanishad of uh, Indra, <clears throat> this uh, god who is the counterpart really of Yahweh. He is the god uh, patron of a certain people and of historical life and time with all kinds of rules for people to live by and that sort of thing. And uh, there was a time when a great monster uh, named Rutra had enclosed all the waters of the earth and so there was a drought, a terrible drought, and uh, the world was in very bad condition. Well, it took this uh, god, Indra, quite a while to realize that he had a box of thunderbolts there, and all he had to do was drop a thunderbolt in Vritra, and that would blow him up. And when he did that, of course, he blew Vritra up, and the waters flowed, and the world was refreshed. And he said, what a great boy am I. So thinking, what a great boy am I, <clears throat> he goes up to the cosmic mountain, which is the central mountain of the world, and so he decided he would build a new world up there, a new city, and particularly his palace was going to be a palace worthy of such as he. So he calls Vishvakarman, the main carpenter of the gods, and gives him the assignment to build this palace. So Vishvakarman goes to work, and in very quick order, he gets the palace into pretty good condition, and the, uh, Indra comes. But every time Indra arrived, he had bigger ideas about how big and grandiose the palace should be. And finally, Vishvakarman said, my gosh, he says, we're both immortal, and he's there's no end to his desires. I'm caught for life. 
So he decided to go to Brahma, known as the creator, and, and complain. Well, now Brahma sits on a lotus. Uh, this is the symbol of divine energy and divine grace. And the lotus grows from the navel of Vishnu, who is the sleeping god whose dream is the universe. So here's Brahma on his lotus, and uh, Vishwakarman comes to the edge of the great lotus pond of the universe, and uh, down he tells his story. Brahma says, you go home. He says, I'll fix this up. So next morning, at the uh, gate of the palace that's being built, uh, there appears a beautiful blue-black boy uh, uh, with a lot of children around him just in admiration of his beauty. So in comes the boy. And Indra on his throne, he's the king god, he says, uh, young man, uh, welcome. And uh, what brings you to my palace? Well, says the boy with a voice like thunder rolling on the horizon, I've been told that you're building such a palace as no Indra before you ever built. And he said, I've uh, surveyed the grounds and looked things over. It seems this is quite true. No Indra before you has ever built such a palace. Well, Indra says, uh, Indra's before me, young man. Uh, what are you talking about? The boy says, Indra's before you? He says, I have seen them come and go, come and go. He said, just think, Vishnu sleeps in the cosmic ocean. The lotus of a universe grows from his navel. On there sits Brahma, the creator. Brahma opens his eyes, a world comes into being. Governed by an Indra, closes his eyes, the world goes out of being, opens his eyes, the world comes into being, closes his eyes, and the life of a Brahma is 432,000 years, and he dies. The lotus goes back, another lotus, another Brahma. Then think of the galaxies beyond galaxies in infinite space, each a lotus with the Brahma sitting on it, opening his eyes, closing his eyes with interest. There may be wise men in your court who would volunteer to count the drops of water in the oceans of the world or the grains of sand on the beaches, but no one would count those Brahmas, let alone those Indras. And while he's talking, there comes in parade across the floor of the palace an army of ants in perfect range. And the boy laughs when he sees them. And Indra's hair goes up and he thinks, he says to the boy, why do you laugh? And the boy says, don't ask unless you are willing to be hurt. And Indra says, I ask, teach. The boy says, former Indra's all. <laughs> Through many lifetimes they rise from the lowest condition spiritually to highest illumination. And then they drop their thunderbolt in Vritra and they think, what a good boy am I. And down they go again. And then um, Indra sits there on the throne and he, he, he's completely disillusioned, completely shot. And he thinks, oh, let's quit the building of this palace. He calls Vishwakarma and says, you're dismissed. You don't have to. So Vishwakarma got his uh, 
intention. He's dismissed from the job and there's no more house building going on. And uh, Indra decides, I'm going out and be a yogi and just meditate on the lotus feet of Vishnu. But he has a beautiful queen named Indrani. And when Indrani hears this, she goes to the priest, the uh, chaplain of the gods, and she says, now he's got this idea in his head. He's going out to become a yogi. Well, says uh, the Brahmin, uh, come in with me, darling, and we'll sit down and, and I'll fix this up. So he talks to Indra. They come in, they sit down before the king's throne, and he tells him, now, I wrote a book for you some years ago on the art of politics. Uh, you are in the position of the king. You are the position of the king of gods. You are manifestation of the mystery of Brahman in the field of time. This is a high privilege. Appreciate it, honor it, and deal with life as though you were what you really are. And with this set of instructions, Indra gives up his idea of going out becoming a yogi and finds that in life he can represent the eternal in the way of a, a symbol, you might say, of uh, the Brahman and uh, the, the ultimate truth. So each of us is in a way the Indra of his own life. And uh, you can make a choice either to go out and in the forest and meditate and throw it all off, or stay in the world and in the life either of your job, which is the kingly job of the politics and achievement, and as well in the love life with your wife and family, you are realizing the truth. Now, this is a, a very nice myth, it seems to me. Do we ever know the truth? Do we ever find it? Well, each person can have his own depth experience and, and some conviction of uh, being in touch with his own sat chit ananda his own being true consciousness and true bliss but the religious people tell us we really won't experience it till we go to heaven you know till you die i believe in having as much as you can of this experience while you're alive my bliss is now and i think in heaven you'll be having such a marvelous time looking at god that you won't get your own experience at all that's not the place to have it here's the place to have the experience here and now here and now
Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. I like to cover topics from ancient history, great leaders and generals from the past, and I also like to talk about self-realization, truth, critical thinking, and strategic spirituality. Outside the box, nonconformist. I'm here to shatter the myths of the mainstream media and the beta sheeple narrative. My email address is alphamalebuddhist at gmail.com. My website is alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com. My Instagram is alphamalebuddhist. And check out my YouTube channel, Alpha Male Buddhist, and that's on YouTube. It is the podcast accompanied with video clips that integrate exactly with the podcast, so it's motivational and inspirational. I also have promotional t-shirts. If you go to my website, alphamalebuddhist.podbead.com, you can see the promotional t-shirts there. Reach out to me. Also, if you have any show notes or any suggestions that you would like to hear on the podcast, just reach out and see if I can get that done. I've been getting some really great emails and feedback from my listeners, which is great. So I want to thank you for listening. and Namaste. Namaste.